Good morning. Okay, we're in a series here. We just watched the video. How did wounded and weak Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell, how did he crawl seven miles to safety? How did he do it? Seven feet at a time. How do you live a legacy? You do it one day at a time. You do it seven feet at a time. It's a crawl sometimes. And over the next several weeks, we want to teach you how to crawl. We want to teach you how to crawl seven feet every single day. How to live this new life that Jesus Christ has given to us. And we say it's not our life to live, right? It's his life to live through us, my life, his life. Our key verse is found in Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20. Paul wrote this. He said this. He said, my life is his life. Galatians 2.20, please, on the screen. We all. There it is. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ, what did he say? Lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is our key verse. This is what it's all about, church. When you come to Christ, it's no longer about you. It's about him. And now God gets to live his life through you. And your sole purpose on this earth is to accomplish his purposes on this earth. Through your money, through your job, through your time, through your body, through your relationships. How many of you believe that? Say amen this morning. God, live your life through us. And last week, many of you declared, God, live your life through my money. And you said, my money is his money. And you declared that MasterCard is no longer your master, but Jesus is your only master. Many of you prayed last week and said, God, just like Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And guess what? Last week, over 76 of you signed up for Financial Peace University. Is that awesome or what? Give yourselves a hand. That's incredible. We have 200 spots available for financial peace starting up in just two weeks. Some of you don't know what financial peace is, so we do have a video we'd like to show you. Financial peace. We all want it. For a while, I didn't have it. 20 years ago, I hit rock bottom. I lost just about everything. I turned to God for help. And I learned how to handle money his way. As you can imagine, it worked. That's why I started Financial Peace University. Because God's ways work. Whether you're in over your head or you're doing okay right now. If you bring home $10,000 or $10 million, if you're 21 or 61, we all need a plan. Millions of people have been through Financial Peace University. They have success stories of their own. They've learned how to get rid of debt, prepare for generations to come, and give like crazy. Your success story, your financial peace is up to you. Now is your time. It's time to take control of your money. It's time to get ready for what God has for you. It's time for financial peace. 
Awesome. It is time for Financial Peace. Financial Peace is a nine-week course, and uh, it only costs $100. Some of you are going, only $100? Come on, Pastor. That's a lot of money. You know, I told the last service, I'll, I'll say it to you as well, is, is this. If, if I had a son or a daughter who was, was told you are going to die, you have to get this $100 medicine to live, how many of you know I'd figure out a way? I'd find a way, I'd beg my way, I'd, I'd plead my way, I'd sell the shirt off my back so I could get that medicine for my child to live. Listen, your finances need to be in order. Your finances need to be managed God's way. And to do that, sometimes you have to get this gazelle-like intensity and say, you know what, whatever it takes, I'm going to find that hundred bucks. Whatever it takes. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Right? We're going to go after this thing and we're going to, we're going to manage our money God's way. So um, we have two classes that are starting here in just a few weeks. We have one coming on Sunday, September the 11th at 9.30 a.m. We also have one on Tuesday nights beginning September 13th at 6.30 p.m. And so if you're interested in registering for that, please stop by our information center or check out on our website. Or you can also register on the Financial Peace University website. Okay, so where are we going today? Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, all right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig a little deeper into this topic of money because money is a huge part of our lives. So last week was part one. This week is part two, a little deeper into my money, his money. I want you to look with me to Philippians chapter four, verse 19. Philippians chapter four, verse 19. One of the most often quoted scriptures that we hear. Paul writes this, and my God will meet all your needs according to his riches or glorious riches in Christ Jesus. How many of you know that verse? It's a powerful, powerful verse that answers two questions. The first question it answers is, who's going to take care of me? And my God shall, right? So the first question and answer is, who's going to take care of me? And then it tells me how he's going to take care of me. I want to read it again, but this time I want to read it with some emphasis this morning. Again, verse number 19. And my God will meet all. Somebody say all. All all your needs. Say needs with me. Needs. What are all your needs? We're talking spiritual needs, emotional needs, relational needs, financial needs, physical needs. And my God will meet all your needs. How? According to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's going to meet all of those needs because he has all of those resources. He has the relational resources that you need. He has the financial resources. He has the physical resources. He has, how many of you know, he has the spiritual resources. He has all the righteousness you'll ever need. So God is going to meet all of our needs according to his riches. Now, what we need to define sometimes in life is the difference between a need and a want. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Because so many times our needs are over here and our wants are here and they kind of get blended all together and everything becomes what? A need. I need this in my life. I need a new iPhone. Right? I need a new iPhone. So do you. If you don't have an iPhone, you need a new iPhone. iPhones are good. Say amen. Amen. Pastor, this is weird. I need a new car. What's wrong with your car? It's 10 years old, Pastor. 
Well, is there, does it run okay? It runs great, but you know, it's aging. I need a new car. Do we really need that new car? What are our needs? It's a great question in the culture we live in. I, I, I heard of a small group this past week that was actually asking that question. What do we really need? Jesus answered that question in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. We'll read from the New Living Translation. And Jesus said this, So do not worry about these things, saying, What will we, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need, everything you need. So Philippians 419 presents this powerful promise that God himself will provide all our needs. But with the powerful promise also comes a premise. Every time you read about a promise in the word of God, there's always a premise attached to it. A premise is a condition. How many of you know what I'm talking about? The word of God is filled with many, many promises. And we can reach out sometimes and grab that promise and claim that promise. We like Philippians 4.19. We like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. We grab these promises, but we forget there's a premise or a condition behind the promise. And it's found within the context of that verse. So Philippians 4.19, powerful Powerful promise, but there's a premise behind it. And there's three premises or conditions. And the first condition is this. This promise is not for unbelievers. It's not for unbelievers. This promise is written to the church. It's written to those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are born again. It is coming from a father who takes care of his children. The Bible says we're either children of God or we are children of the devil. And God does not take care of the children of the devil. He takes care of his own children. Because he's a good, good father. So the first condition is simply this. This promise is not for unbelievers. Second condition is this promise is not for all believers. Now you're listening. This promise, my God will meet all you. It's not for all believers. I don't think every Christian can claim this verse. I don't think if my priorities are out of whack and if I'm disobedient in areas of my life, especially in the areas of my finance, if I'm living foolishly, I don't think I can claim this verse. My God will meet all my needs. I do believe that God will meet all your needs, but he's not obligated to meet your standard of living. If you willfully get into stupid debt, and I've done it, We've all done it. Everybody raise your hand guilty, right? <laughs> if you willfully get into stupid debt, don't ask God to bail you out of your stupidity. Okay? We make some of the dumbest moves, the dumbest decisions at times, right? And we bought this thing and it's called buyer's remorse. And we go, what was I thinking? You weren't thinking at all. You were feeling, right? When you make decisions with your feelings, you make bad decisions. How many of you made some of those decisions and how many of you are still paying for those decisions, right? Galatians chapter six, seven, right? Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit will or please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. 
See, the condition number two is this promise is not for all believers. You can't be dumb about how you handle money and then ask God to bless you. We read last week that he who has been trustworthy with a little will be trustworthy with much. So God is looking for trustworthy servants. This promise of Philippians 4.19 is not for all believers, but condition number three, this promise is for believers who will sacrificially give. See, this verse is written to who? It's written to the Philippian church. And what are they doing? They are sacrificially giving up of their own needs, of their own wants to meet a need in the Apostle Paul's life. It is written to the church, a giving church, a giving people. And this is what it says here. Let's look at the context. Philippians chapter 4, 18. Paul says this. And we only have to look at one other verse to get the context. Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and even more. He says, I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We have to read these promises in context. Every promise has a premise. And what Paul is saying to the Philippian church is this. He's he's saying, because of your sacrificial gift, because you've put somebody else's needs before your own, because you are seeking first the kingdom of God, my God shall meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory. You know, I could be up here for an hour just telling you the stories about how God has provided over the years. I have been saved for 30 years. I got saved in 1986, saved for 30 years. And uh, not every area of my life can I say my life was his life. There are different places in my life over the years that I, I have wrestled with God. But the one area I have not wrestled with God is the area of finance. And I'll say this. I've been tithing for 30 years. I've been giving to missions for 30 years. I've given at least over 15% of my income, my wife and I, our income for over 30 years. And I can tell you this verse is true. My God shall meet all your needs according to his glorious riches. When we first got married, we lived in a little one-bedroom apartment. We made about $12,000 a year combined income. And we found out one day that we owed um, some tax Money. We owed the IRS some tax money and, and we owed him a thousand dollars. That's an entire month income for us. We had absolutely no way to pay it. We went to bed that night. We prayed, God, we're going to trust you to meet this need. It was due the next day. And the next morning we opened the door. There was an envelope, no lie, leaning against the door. The envelope fell. We opened the envelope. There was 10 $100 bills in that envelope. Nobody knew about that need. Except God. <laughs> and how many of you know he knows how to communicate to somebody about a need in your life? I'll tell you this. God doesn't always send the check in the mail. He doesn't always send the envelope at the door, right? He doesn't always work that way, but he always meets the need. I remember before I got married, I was an electrician. I got laid off for two weeks. I was two weeks without a paycheck, but I still had two weeks worth of bills. 
I said, God, how are you going to meet these bills? I discovered my dad had two old snowmobiles. Neither one of them worked. And I said, Dad, can I try to fix those things up and sell them? He said, sure, whatever you need to do. So I took all the good stuff off of the one snowmobile, put it on the other snowmobile, and I sold that snowmobile for $400. And God met my need. I didn't sit around and wait for the envelope to end to show up in the mail. I said, God, what in front of me can I do? How many of you know what I'm talking about? I was in Bible school. We had bills to pay. We didn't have money to pay those bills, but I had two guns in the closet. I had a trumpet in the closet and I had a motorcycle in the parking lot. How many of you know those were not needs? Those were wants. I said, God, how are we going to pay the bills this month? And I saw these two guns and I saw this trumpet and I saw this motorcycle. I said, God, thank you for meeting that need. And I sold those things and we paid the bills that month. I didn't shake my fist at God and say, God, you took my motorcycle. I didn't need that motorcycle. How many of you know what I'm talking about? See, God meets our needs in sometimes ways we don't we don't imagine him to do so. I was without work at one point while in Bible college. And and I was like, God, I need work. I need work. And and I found out this guy needed somebody to weed his garden. And it was hot August. It was dry. It was Missouri. It was mosquitoes. It was humid. It was all of that. And, And the only opening that I had was weed this garden for an entire week, eight hours a day weeding a garden. It's like pulling, it's like pulling roots out of cement. It was so hard, but you know what? It wasn't my first choice for a job, but God met our need that week through that job. How many know God will meet the need. He may not meet it the way you like it. You may have to sweat to get it. You may have to give up a want to have it, but God will meet your needs. During our 24 years of marriage, my wife and I were sitting down just recently and I said, Carrie, how many cars have been given to us in the last 24 years? We started counting one, two, three, four, five cars have been just given to us over these last 24 years. You see, Philippians 419 is a promise with a premise. And the premise is this give and it shall be given to you. The premise is this, when God's people will sacrificially give, when they'll put their needs aside and put the kingdom of God first, God will take care of your business. He'll do it, and he'll do it every time. Philippians 4.19, it uh, contains a powerful promise with a premise that points to an underlying principle. And the principle is found in the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's found from Genesis to Revelation, and the principle is called what? The law of harvest. The law of harvest. Some people have called it the law of sowing and reaping. Or the law of reciprocity, right? Jesus explained what this law of harvest is in the gospel of Luke chapter 38. And Jesus said this, give and it will be given to you. Give and it will be given to you. Now, does that make any sense? Somebody say no. Given it will be given to somebody else and lost forever. That makes sense. But Jesus says, no, this is the way the law of harvest works. Give and it shall be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. How many of you know this scripture is not just a money scripture? In fact, the context right here is not money. Whatever you give, listen, if you need more time, I don't have enough time, then give some time away. You say, you know, I don't have enough clothes. Give some clothes away. 
You know, I don't have any friends. How about becoming friendly? Give and it shall be given. You see, the law of harvest says this. It says, it says you get what you sow, you get more than what you sow, and you get it later than when you sow it. That's the law of harvest. It's this principle found all throughout the word of God. I want you to take notice of a story. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this is found in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse number 1. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It's about this prophet named Elijah and this widow of Zarephath. Let's look at Elijah and let's see how God takes care of him in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Verse two, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will eat or excuse me, you will drink from the brook. And I have ordered, watch this, supernatural provision. I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. No bakers, no hy no olive garden, just ravens. And so he did what the Lord had told him. And he went to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. I'm going to the Kareth ravine for lunch today. That sounds like supernatural provision. Now, jump down to verse number seven. Notice how God supplies the second time. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zareph of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. A widow? Come on, God. Couldn't you find some rich guy who had a lot of extra? God picks on a widow. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath and when he came to the town gate, a widow was gathering sticks and he called to her and he asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, hey, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour and a little in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Watch what she says. I am gathering a few sticks to take it home, make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That's the last supper right there. And Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. I love this. You might be at the place where you're at your last meal, your last supper. It's like, this is all I have. I'm going to go home. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to die. And Elijah, the man of God, tells this widow, don't be afraid. Go home as you have said. But first, look at this. Look what he says here. This is crazy. But first, make a small cake of bread for who? For me, he says, from what you have, bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Now. If I were that widow, I'd be smacking him upside down. I'd say, who are you telling me that you're going to eat before my son? I'm going to take care of my son first. But no, the man of God says, first, make me a small cake. Now watch how he says this and why. 
Verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. This is what Elijah told her. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and she did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with what? The word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. See, sometimes we ask God, God, where is the harvest? And God is saying, where is the seed? We want God's provision and God is saying, I'll provide, but you first. You first bring me a small jar of water. You first make me a small cake of bread. You first, God says, you first, you first, give and it shall be given, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's this law of harvest that God has established. It's not an Old Testament law. It's a New Testament. All throughout scripture, we see it. And God is saying, give me your seed and I will give you my harvest. You see, when we store our seed, when we store what God has given to us, or when we just consume and eat the seed that God has given to us, all it is is seed. It can't do anything if we eat it or if we store it. But when we take the seed, the resource God has given to us, and we invest it and we plant it in the kingdom and we invest it, then the power of that seed is released and it is then able to be multiplied. Jesus, when he was when he was pointing to the cross towards his death, he said, unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground, he was talking of his own life and dies, it only remains a single seed. But when it's planted, when it dies, it produces what? Many seeds. It's the law of harvest. Came across a little story. Once there was a man, he was lost in the desert. He was near death from thirst. And dehydration. And he was wandering aimlessly through the burning sand day after day and growing weaker by the day. And at long last, he saw an oasis out there in the desert and he saw these palm trees and he knew there must be water nearby. And then he noticed something strange about this oasis. Instead of a pool of water or a bubbling spring, he found a pump at that oasis. How many of you ever seen one of these? Huh? He found a pump instead of a pool. And, and he saw next to the pump, there was this, this jar of water. He was so thirsty. He was near death. He saw the water and he was about ready to take the lid off and drink it. And he saw this, this parchment note sitting next to it and... And he thought, I wonder what this is all about. So he took, the, he took the parchment note and he opened it up and he began to read it. And it said this, dear traveler, if you wish to survive your journey, follow these instructions carefully. Do not drink this jar of water. Pour the water, every single drop into the opening at the top of the pump. The leather gasket inside the pump must be saturated with water for the pump to work. You must prime the pump as the leather softens and expands an unlimited supply of clean and refreshing water 
will be available. And then the last note on this parchment says this, refill the jar for the next traveler. So this man is, he's now faced with this, this dilemma. He is literally dying of thirst, of dehydration. What's he going to do? He has the opportunity to drink the water that he's found. There's not much of it. And, and of course, it's likely that even drinking this small jar of water won't save his life. But it also seemed foolish of him to pour this jar of water down into the pump. On the other hand, if the, if the note was true, and if he did pour the water down into the pump, then he would have an unlimited supply of water, all the water that he needed. But what was he going to do? What, were you, what would you do if you were that man? Huh? How many of you would pour the, the jar of water down the pump? How many of you would do that? Raise your hand. See? See, here's what it comes down to. It comes down to this simple question. And the question is this. Is the parchment note true? Can you trust the parchment note? Some of you go, well, yeah, I can because I've poured water down a pump before. I know what it means to prime the pump. And you're like, I've been there. I've done that. I know it works. But this man had never done that. And he's looking at this parchment note. And the question is, can this be trusted? If the note is true, then you're, you're an idiot not to pour the water down, right? But if the note is false, you're probably going to die anyway. Whether you pour the water down into the pump or whether you drink the water, you're going to die. But if this note is true, the smartest, the wisest, the shrewdest thing that you could ever do is take that which you could consume immediately and pour it down in order that by giving you would receive. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Unlimited supply. See, every one of us is going to come to the point where we're going to have to decide in our Christian life if this parchment note can be trusted. Every one of us is going to have to decide, can we trust this note? Can we trust the word of God? Every one of us has to decide who wrote this book and can this book be trusted? Are you with me this morning? Can we believe what is written in its pages? What I can tell you this morning is that many of you will make a decision to go down a path that perhaps you've never gone down before. Many of you will take a step maybe that you've never taken before. And when you take that step, you're going to experience something you've never experienced before. And you're going to have stories that you've never told before because they've never happened to you. They've always happened to somebody else. Somebody else always gets the free car, right? Pastor Walt got five free cars. (laughs) Well, you live for 30 years and you give for 30 years and you'll probably have five free cars too. We had one lady stand up here Wednesday night and she's, she gave a story and she said, you know what? I found somebody with a need. They, their kid needed a bicycle and we had an extra bike. And, and so we gave him the bike, right? We had a need and her need was we needed a car. And so she gave the bike away. And the next day um, she's praying, God, I really need a car. My car is not, I need a car. And God gave her a car the very next day. Not a bad deal. Give a car, get, give a bike, get a car, huh? 
It's how God works. It's how he works. See, Philippians 4.19 does not apply to the average Christian in America. It doesn't. The average Christian in America, their priorities are completely out of whack. Listen to this. Studies show that about 97.5%, 97.5% of evangelical Christians, they're consuming the jar of water in the desert. They're drinking it. And they're dying in the desert, 97.5%, and only 2.5%. They are actually believing the parchment note. They're believing the note, and they're actually pouring the water into the pump. Only 2.5% are saying, God, I'm going to give you the first little jar of water. God, I'm going to give you the first part of my income. God, I'm going to give you the tithe, 2.5%. According to George Barna's studies. See, as stewards of God's resources, and how many of you know what a steward is? A manager, right? As managers, right, we're not owners. The car you drove in today is not your car. If you have a biblical worldview, if you understand that my life is his life to live, you understand that your car is his car, your wallet is his wallet, your resources, everything, the clothes on your back, they don't belong to you, they belong to him. He owns it all, the Bible says. We are managers of God's resources, and as managers of God's resources, we do two things with money. We, we spend it and we invest it. We all spend it differently, don't we? I, uh, I spend it on hunting. Because if you don't hunt, you don't eat, the Bible says. <laughs> kind of, not really. Right? So we all spend the extra money on different kinds of things and different kinds of hobbies and different kinds of wants and... And uh, ladies shop, men hunt, and the rest of us sit at home and play, um, what are those things called? Video games? Huh. All right, I'm just teasing. So we do two things with money. We spend it, we invest it, and according to the Bible, we invest it um, in things called tithes and offerings. So we take our dollars and we invest in the kingdom through tithes and offerings. Tithe is 10%, we understand, and it's mentioned 39 times in the Bible, and in each case, it means a tenth part. So 39 times in the Bible, this word tithe comes, it means 10%, and here in Leviticus chapter 27, verse number 30. Can I talk to you about tithing this morning for a little bit? All right? It hits my preaching schedule about every two years, maybe every four years. And you are so lucky to have come on a Sunday where I get to talk to you about tithing in the last 10 minutes of our message. Leviticus 27:30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, and it is holy to the Lord. In other words, a tenth of all your income. Back then, they counted their income as, as seeds and fruits. And today, it's, it's dollar bills. So 10% of our income belongs to the Lord. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, the prophet wrote this, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. You may say, Pastor, that's a great Old Testament passage, but show me in the New Testament where tithing is commanded of us. I'm glad you asked. Jesus confirmed the tithe in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. And Jesus said this. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. He said, you give a tenth of your spices. That's a tithe. A tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. 
But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He's saying, don't neglect the tithe, but don't forget about these things as well. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus said this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In other words, Jesus is saying, managers of my resources, they pay their taxes. They're honest about their tax, right? They're honest when it comes to tax time. They pay their taxes, but they also pay their tithes. You see, I begin to realize that according to the word of God, stewards or managers, they pay their tithes in the same way that they pay their taxes, their utility bill, their car payment. We pay our tithes. You don't give your tithe any more than you give your car payment, right? You pay it. You pay it. See, when you make your car payment, do you get a letter a week later from your lender saying, thank you so much for the wonderful gift we received this week. It was so kind of you to remember us this month and your generosity is just overwhelming. Uh, no, you don't get that kind of letter. But if you if you miss a couple of car payments, you're going to get a different kind of letter, right? Why? Because you owe it to them, right? See, the Bible doesn't say that the tithe becomes the Lord's when you pay it. The Bible says the tithe is the Lord's, whether you pay it or not. And here the prophet says, when you don't pay the tithe, you are literally robbing God. You're not giving back to God what rightfully belongs to him. I remember when we lived in Glenwood, Iowa, we just moved into a, a, a new house. And the contractor had left this beautiful 24-foot orange fiberglass ladder under the deck in the backyard. And I called him and I called him and I called him. And I left three messages and I sent him an email and I said, your ladder, your ladder is here. Come get it, come get it. And a year later, the ladder still sat under there. And I said, well, funny how God answers prayer. I always needed a nice 24-foot orange fiberglass ladder, right? And so I started to keep that thing as it, it was my very own. And then one day, I'm, I'm just walking in the back, and I see that ladder, and the Spirit of God speaks to me and says, how do you expect me to bless you when you keep something that belongs to somebody else? So I said, okay, God, I got the message. Our boys were just small at the time. I said, boys... Dad has done something, and I need to make it right. They say, Dad, what happened? I said, just get in the truck. Boys get in the truck. I loaded up the ladder. We drive to the contractor and uh, drop off the ladder, and he wasn't there. So I left the notes, and I explained to my boys, you know, what I had done. Can I tell you, fathers? Can I tell you, mothers? Can I tell you, parents? Your kids will learn more from you in how you handle your mistakes, right? They're watching. We're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. Let's just be honest and real about those things. I said, God, forgive me for keeping something that doesn't belong to me. It belonged to that contractor. And I returned it to that contractor. And in the same way, when we give our tithe, what we're doing is we're simply returning something that already belongs to God. It's the tithe and it belongs to him. Pastor W.A. Criswell, he tells of an ambitious young man who told his pastor one day that he promised God a tithe of his income. And they prayed for God to bless this young man's career. And at that time, he was, he was making only $40 a week, and he was tithing $4 a week. In a few years, his income increased significantly. And he was now tithing $500 a week 
not making, tithing $500 a week. He called on the pastor to see if he could be released from the tithing promise. It was too costly for him now. And the pastor replied, I don't see how you can be released from your promise, but we can ask God to reduce your income back to $40 a week. Then you'd have to only tithe $4 a week. (laughs) Sometimes it's harder to tithe when you have it than when you don't. Peter Marshall said this, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. Bring the whole tithe, not 5%, 10%. Bring the whole tithe into where? The storehouse. The storehouse is where you get your spiritual food, right? Everybody knows somebody who's a missionary or an evangelist or a friend who's in need. Don't give them the tithe. That's not biblical. Bring the whole tithe into where you spiritually get fed, where you spiritually grow. That's the storehouse. The local church is the place where you're to grow and where you're to bring the tithe. You know, it'd be like me going out to eat to a nice fancy restaurant. We'll go to Charleston's today for lunch and wonderful meal there. And and after the meal, I I get the bill and, and I look at it and I go, you know what? Charleston's doesn't need this money. There's a small struggling diner down the street. I'm going to go pay them the bill. I'm going to go give it to them instead of Charleston's. Right? What would we call that? We'd call that stealing, right? We'd call that stealing. See, in the same way where we, we bring the tithe where we're spiritually fed, just like we, bring the, we pay the bill where we're physically fed. No different at all. I want you to notice something here as we wrap up. I want you to notice what amazing thing happens When we believe the parchment note is true. What happens when we pay the tithe? Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. We're going to wrap it up. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That there may be food in my house. Watch this. This is what God says. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. And do what? Pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Wow, what a powerful promise. What's amazing to me about this is, is God throughout scripture, he asked his children to trust him. Trust me, trust me, trust me, he says. But here in this instance, he says, test me. Here he says, test me in this. Put God to the test. The question this morning is, do we believe the parchment note is true? Do we believe that if we take the first part, if we take the first glass, if we pour it into the pump, if we pour it back into the kingdom, the first part of our income, the tithe, do we believe that God will supply more than enough to meet all of our needs? Do we believe God? And God says, test me in this. So here's your test this morning. Some of you are like, well, I already tithe. This message isn't for me, right? It's for the person next to me. Poke your neighbor and say, this is for you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) So I'm going to give you a 40 or not a 40, a 90 day challenge, a three month challenge. And this is a test God challenge. What I'm going to challenge you to do according to God's word, hear God's word, not me, not my word. Put God to the test for 90 days, beginning September 1st through December 1st. I think that's 90 days. Maybe it's 91. And put God to the test and give God the first jar of water. Give God the first part of your income. Give God the 10%. Listen, it's not for me. It doesn't come to me. 
I'm not on commission here at Glad Tidings Church. I'm taken care of, okay? And I'm thankful for that. This is not for me. This is for the kingdom. Listen, we've got a city to reach. We've got a world to reach. It takes dollars and cents to do that. But even if we weren't doing that, God says, give me the tithe. Return to me the tithe. We're giving it to God. We're giving it to God. I want you to stand with me this morning as we prepare to finish up here. Test me. Test me, God is saying. Find out if the parchment, find out if the parchment is true. Find out if the parchment is true. I encourage you to sign up for Financial Peace University. I encourage you to put God to the test and watch him prove himself faithful to you. God, today we're so grateful, God. We're so grateful of how generous you are to us. Lord, we want every part of our lives to be fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God, our money is your money. Our life is your life. Our time is your time. God, we want to be good stewards, good managers with the life that you have given to us. God, I pray that you would give your church, your people, the courage, the courage to tithe. Give them the faith to tithe. We love you, Lord. We love you. Praise you, God. Would you lift your hands and sing this chorus with us today? today and you need prayer in your body and you would like somebody to pray for you how many of you know God is able to meet that need he is able to meet that need I'm going to encourage our prayer workers to come if you're here this morning and you have spiritual needs maybe you realize this morning you are spiritually bankrupt you are poor in spirit you are far from God you are sinful this morning and your sins bother you it's time to bother Jesus if your sins bother you bother Jesus this morning Because he's ready to remove those sins. He's ready to forgive you of those sins and give you that brand new life. His life. He's inviting you this morning into his life. Don't invite Jesus into your life. Listen to him. He's inviting you into his life this morning. Take on his nature, his righteousness, his power this morning. Take it on this morning. If you're not here, if you're here and you're not saved this morning, we encourage you to come and respond. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Amen. Amen. Say my money, his money, his money. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week in Jesus.